Amen. Please be seated. In our gospel lesson for this morning, uh, the audience consists of the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they're debating with Jesus. And so there's kind of a, a, a verbal, spiritual, emotional struggle taking place. Jesus is, is teaching in parables. And, and this particular parable actually gives us a panoramic view of biblical history. It takes us all the way from the Garden of Eden, one could say, up to the time of Christ himself. The, the vineyard could be understood as representing the garden. This is, this is God's planting. It's, everything is good. Everything is perfect. There's nothing out of place. There's nothing more God could do or provide than what he's already done in this vineyard, even as he did in Eden long ago. So the vineyard can be understood as representing Eden, the garden. The tenants represent rebellious, that rebellious part of Israel, the chief priests, the leaders, the elites. The servants represent the prophets that through history God sent, and they were killed, they were stoned, they were imprisoned, they were mocked. And then the son, of course, symbolizes Jesus himself. And, and, and this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has acknowledged himself to be the son of God. So let's take a quick look at the text before we get into the message then. Beginning at verse 33, Jesus said, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who, and notice the verbs here, planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants, people who were presumed to be responsible caretakers like Adam and Eve in the garden and went into another country. And this really indicates how God ordinarily rules the world. He rules through people whom he's appointed. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And, and this is really indicating a repeated sending time and time again. Down through biblical history, we see this in the Hebrew Bible. And they did the same to them. Finally, and this is significant now, this is the final revelation of God. There's nothing else after this. If you're going to reject the Son, you're rejecting the ultimate self-revelation of God. There's no Joseph Smith coming. There's no Muhammad coming appointed by God. Jesus is it. He's the final, complete revelation of the Father. So finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, you and I may hear that and think how foolish of him <laughs> after they treat the servants, and really in the Greek it's the slaves, how they treat the slaves. Why would he think they would treat the son any differently? 
Well, for, for this reason, there's a big difference in how you treat a slave versus how you treat an important person like the son of the master, okay? And so he had every right to expect that even though they mistreated these slaves terribly, hopefully they would treat the son better, recognizing his status. But they don't. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard. You see, they expelled him. They, in a sense, damned him. He's excluded from Israel. He has no part in the vineyard, according to them. And of course, this echoes, it presages really Jesus, who is crucified outside of the city at Calvary. And they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? Now, now notice this. Notice the mercy of God and the love of God for his tenants. Time after time after time, he sends prophets, servants, to encourage them to return, to repent, to do the right thing. No landowner in the Mideast would act, and no landowner here would act this way. Only God would act this way, time and again, providing opportunity to repent. Only God does this. And, and notice in, in verse 40, Jesus, Jesus doesn't pronounce sentence upon them. They pronounce sentence upon themselves. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. You see, that's their opinion of what's right. They're getting justice correct. And they're condemning themselves in the process. And, and this is why we would say, we don't need God to condemn us. We condemn ourselves. He will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. This is what Jesus meant when he said, with the words you judge, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We, we condemn ourselves. We will be judged on the basis of what we did or what we neglected to do. There's going to be no debate on the last day about what is our due. We deserve what we've given. That's justice, you see. It's not grace now, but that's justice. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So far the text. So, uh, since, I believe, May 25th of this year, nearly 200 statues, monuments, and historical markers have been defaced or taken down. Confederate monuments get most of the publicity, but they're really a minority of the memorials that have been destroyed. By far the most popular target uh, is Christopher Columbus, 
uh, 33 statues of Columbus have been removed. I don't know that there's a single one standing anymore in the United States. The next most popular targets, Robert E. Lee, Father Junipero Serra, and Thomas Jefferson. Now, the vast majority of the vandals have never been charged. And most of these monuments were taken down, not by protesters, but by city officials after pressure from the protesters. So most monuments are destroyed or they disappear in the following way. The protesters damage it, and then the city officials, out of a concern for, quote, public safety, remove the monument to parts unknown, not to be returned. And these are only the most recent examples of what we might call iconoclasm, okay? Iconoclasm, this is Roman numeral one, part A, literally means image breaking, image breaking. And it's from the Greek word uh, icon, we get our word icon from that, means image. And the word klao, uh, on the Last Supper, Jesus takes the bread, he lifts it up, and he klaos it, he breaks it, all right? Except here we're talking about breaking images. And this is nothing new. Letter B, it refers to a recurring historical impulse to break or destroy images for religious or political purposes. For example, in ancient Egypt, when there was a new pharaoh, it was not unusual for him to remove the images of the previous pharaoh. The same was true in ancient Rome. This was true in the Eastern Orthodox churches uh, in the eighth and ninth centuries. There was what was called the iconoclastic controversy and people went around destroying images and pictures and so on. Uh, eventually that side lost out, they restored images and pictures, but uh, people were concerned about violating the commandment, you shall not make any graven images to worship. So there was iconoclasm in the Eastern Church for a, a good century. Uh, the Radical Reformation, not the Lutheran Reformation, but the Radical Reformation uh, destroyed images. Um, the Calvinistic churches, uh, followers of Calvin, followers of Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, they would chisel off on church facades any images of, of a saint or an Old Testament figure uh, Jesus, the Virgin Mary, not allowed. They would remove the images. Uh, the same was true in the French Revolution. Any images of saints or of kings were destroyed. Uh, this has been true in the Soviet Union. I remember when um, Nikita Khrushchev became the leader of the, the old Soviet Union. He removed all the statues of Stalin and I remember looking at that country and thinking, wow, they do that kind of thing over there. That's rather barbaric. And then the Taliban, uh, they destroy uh, statues of the Buddha. They blow them up. And even worse uh, to me, uh, in, in Syria, they went to Tadmor, which was an ancient caravan city mentioned in the Bible, and blowing up everything, any kind of historical image they destroy. 
And so what we've seen this summer, this is the first time in America that I'm aware of that it's occurred. And, um, but, but it's nothing new. It's new here, unfortunately, but it's not new elsewhere. It's a recurring phenomenon. Now, I'm telling you all this because I, I want you to use your imagination for just a moment. And I want you to imagine this. Imagine a statue that's toppled, it's broken, its nose is on the ground. The protesters mock it. They beat it with sticks. They kick it. They spit upon it. And then they return home proud of themselves. Now, here's where I want you to really use your imagination. The former requires no imagination, really. It happens, right? But imagine this. The next morning, the statue is upright. It's fully restored. It's more glorious than it ever was before. And on top of it all, it's indestructible. Sledgehammers cannot damage it. Chisels cannot deface it. Spray paint doesn't work anymore on this restored image. Well, that's what's happening in our gospel reading for today. You see, God makes images too. It's not just us. God makes images of himself. And we see that Roman numeral two, letter A, number one, in Adam and Eve, God said in Genesis one, let us make man in our image. And this is God again speaking in the plural about himself. God is one in three persons. So let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and the creeping things and so on and so forth. And this is why kings in the ancient world, the pharaohs, would erect images of themselves. It was a symbolic reminder to everyone else of who's in charge. Don't forget it. Who's in charge? And that's why we bear the image of God. It's a reminder to all the creatures and to one another of who's in charge. It's the Lord. God rules the world through his images, his living, breathing statues. Now, that image exists in us, number two. But, but there's a caution here because we read in Genesis 5 that Adam begat a son in his own image. So there's, there's a difference here. We're still in the image of God, but we resemble Adam more than our Father in heaven. Ever since the fall, that's the reality. We look more like Adam than our Father, and we act more like Adam than our Father. So, so both are in play. We still bear the image of God, but it is a disfigured image. It's, it's as if we've been defaced. We're born with this sin nature. It is a disfigured image of God that we bear. And not only that, but whenever we sin, whenever we act out the old Adam, we further disfigure the image of God. We further 
deface ourselves and those whom we sin against. It's, it's as if we take spray paint and, and uglify someone with it for a moment. It's defacing the very image of God. And so whenever we speak ill of another, whenever we mistreat another, we're actually harming the image of God. And, and I'll tell you this, in the ancient world, except when the Pharaoh did it to the previous Pharaoh, it was almost a capital crime to deface an image. It was disrespect for the person, you see. And so it's no different when we disrespect one another or God himself, we're defacing the image of God and we're defacing ourselves when we act in this way. And so I would ask you, who are the real iconoclasts? The protesters may spray paint a bunch of granite, but when we go our own way apart from God, we deface the real thing, the living image of God in ourselves and in others. Who are the real iconoclasts? Well, number three, Jesus bears God's image in a way that no one has since Adam and Eve. Hebrews 1.3 says this, he, meaning Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint, the exact perfect image of God you see in Jesus. In Jesus, you see what mankind was meant to be. A perfect reflection of God. This is why our Lord would say to Thomas, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The exact imprint of the Father. Letter B, God's image is destroyed and it's marvelously restored. It's marvelously restored in our gospel lesson for today. It's supernaturally restored, not by human initiative, not by popular election, but by God's work alone. That's verse 42. The stone that the builders rejected or crucified cast out of the vineyard as unworthy of being in the vineyard. That has become the cornerstone. That has become the foundation of a whole new Israel. An Israel that excludes no one but includes all who trust in the work of this one, Jew and Gentile alike. And we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that many of the priests believed in Christ. After his death and resurrection, after the outpouring of the Spirit and the preaching of the apostles, even many of the priests, the ones opposing him today, came to faith. They become a part of this new, inclusive Israel. Number one, through our rejection of him, he accomplishes his acceptance of us. Through our rejection of him, he accomplishes acceptance of us. Through our damnation of him, our exclusion of him, he accomplishes salvation for us. 
You see, that's the most marvelous thing of all. It's, it's one thing to be restored, indestructible. Death has no more dominion over him. But it's another thing that in the process of doing that, he does for us exactly what we need done. Number two, through the chief priest exclusion of Jesus from Israel, Jesus builds a new inclusive Israel for all. And this is why I would say that the death of our Lord is iconoclastic. The death of Jesus is like the toppling of a statue. It's like the toppling of God's very image. But in the resurrection of Jesus, God marvelously restores that image. He restores it in a glorious way, in an indestructible way. That's marvel number one. And marvel number two is that through our destruction of Jesus and through God's restoration of Jesus, God accomplishes for humanity exactly what humanity needs. God loves us so much that even when we do our worst to him, he is at work doing his best for us. Even through our murder of him, he will give life to us. Even through our damnation of him, he will work salvation for us. That is God's work. That is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.